are listening to a sermon from Sojourn Church in Fairfax, Virginia. We hope that this is an encouragement to you no matter where you find yourself on your spiritual journey. If you're not already, we would encourage you to connect to your local church. If you'd like to find out more about Sojourn in particular, please visit our website at sojournfairfax.com. May God bless you now as you listen to the preaching of his word. Uh, it's good to gather with you this evening. My name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn. If we haven't had the opportunity uh, to meet before, I hope that we can do that this evening. Uh, and I'm just grateful to be able to have this time with you to dive into God's word now. So before we do that, before we jump into John chapter 12, would you just pray with me? Father, we thank you for the blessing of gathering together. We thank you for technology that even some of our brothers and sisters uh, can gather with us at home right now. And God, I pray now as we open up your word that you would help us to see Jesus. God, would you remove distractions? Would you help us to see who Christ really is? That we would understand him more fully? That we might follow him in every aspect of our life? Holy Spirit, would you help us to remove anything that's keeping us from seeing Jesus for who he really and truly is? And as we do that, God, I pray that as your word is preached today, that you would not only allow us to see Jesus, but follow him with the entirety of our lives. So bless this time now, God. Would you be glorified in it? We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, how many of you have been to uh, an escape room before? Raise your hand if you've been to an escape room before. All right, if you haven't been to one, they, have, they all have the same kind of basic premise or concept to them. You're locked into a room with a few other people, and the goal is for you to get out within a certain amount of time. And the way you get out is you have to do a bunch of different clues and unlock different things. Sometimes you have to go into other rooms, but you have a timer and it's set. And you have usually about an hour to try and break out of this escape room. I've done two of them before, gotten out of one, not the other. And it's a mixture of being both fun and maddening at the same time. Now, I don't have a ton of experience with them, but nevertheless, I want to give you a pro tip about getting out of an escape room. The answer you're looking for is often in the details. The answer you're looking for to get out is often in the details. Sometimes the smallest, most seemingly insignificant thing can actually be the biggest help. It can be the clue that you're looking for to take the next step. It can end up communicating way more than you realize. Well, today we come to this text in John chapter 12, and really it's the beginning of the end of the Gospel of John. Jesus is going to come into Jerusalem knowing full well that he's going to his death. But one of the most significant things we learn about Jesus in these verses is contained in the details. And what we'll see not only shapes our view of Jesus, but our life with him here and now. And so my hope for you today whether you're younger or older, no matter how long you've known Jesus or maybe you don't know him at all, is that we'll see him for who he truly is, a humble king, a humble king, and that we'll follow him with the entirety of our lives. So let's dive into John chapter 12 and seek to see Jesus more clearly today. We finished John chapter 11 a few weeks ago and we saw some big things happen in John chapter 11. The main thing was that Jesus raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. Lazarus had been in the grave for four days, but Jesus calls him by name after saying that he's the resurrection and the life, and Lazarus comes out of the grave alive again. And the Pharisees are upset about all the people that are coming after Jesus, and so they start to put together a plot to eliminate Jesus, to execute Jesus. We get to the beginning of chapter 12, which we looked at two weeks ago, 
and saw that Mary does this act of extravagant love as Lazarus is sitting there at the table with Mary and Martha's there and other people are there and she pours out this expensive ointment on Jesus' feet as an act of devotion to Jesus, not even realizing that she was pointing to the fact that Jesus would one day, very soon, die for her and people like her. Well, that brings us to our text today, which takes place in chapter 12, verses 12 through 13. And in the heading in most of your Bibles, it probably has the triumphal entry. That's what it's commonly called. Let's read verses 12 and 13 again. John writes, The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So what we see here is the beginning of Passover, right? There's, there's this festival that's happening where God's people would come to Jerusalem every year to celebrate the fact that God had rescued his people many years before out of slavery, out of Egypt. And so they're coming into the city, into Jerusalem. There's all kinds of people around. And this large crowd that's there, they aren't there specifically because of Jesus. They're there for Passover. But they hear that Jesus is coming. And so they go out to him and meet him on the road into the city. See, the fame of Jesus has spread immensely around Israel, around Jerusalem. People, if they haven't actually seen Jesus or heard Jesus, they've heard about Jesus. Some of the things he's done, namely, as we just heard from the text being read, Lazarus being raised from the grave. And so they go out to him. There's a buzz about Jesus. And in that buzz, there's a hope. The people are hoping that he is indeed the one they've longed for. It's been spoken about throughout the Old Testament, this coming Messiah, this coming rescuer and king. And they make that abundantly clear in their response to his coming. They take palm branches and line up along the road around Jesus shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Now, maybe this scene sounds somewhat familiar to you, especially if you've been around the church for a while uh, or you grew up in the church. This is often the event that's celebrated on Palm Sunday, the Sunday that happens before Easter. The church that I was a part of for a while, uh, every year on Palm Sunday would hand out little palm branches to the kids and they'd all come in singing a song. And the song went something like this, jumping up and down, jumping up and down, jumping up and down, shout Hosanna, Hosanna. And everybody's going crazy and they're clapping and everybody's smiling. It's a, a big event. Everyone's excited about it. But you can imagine in the moment at this point where this is actually happening in Jerusalem, things are reaching a fever pitch. There's an ecstatic feeling taking place. But here's the place in this story that we need to slow down a little bit and zero in on the details because there's something significant that's happening here. First, the palm branches. These aren't just convenient things for people to wave around. Like they weren't like, man, we want to celebrate Jesus coming to town. What's handy? Let me grab some palm branches because I don't have streamers to throw or those little New Year's Eve popper things that you set off. Let's just grab some palm branches. This wasn't first century celebration. No, what they're doing in the midst of this is a symbol that they're, that they're using to display what they're actually trying to communicate about Jesus. See, palm branches at this period of time were a symbol of victory. They were a symbol of victory over an enemy. When a king and his army would return back to their city, there would be a parade after they defeated a, an oppressor or an enemy or a threat. And the people would line the roads, this route that they were taking, this army and the king coming back into town, and they would wave palm branches or lay them on the path. 
And so this detail and this action, along with what the people say, is revealing about who they think Jesus is. So the second thing we see is what they say. This has significant meaning too. The word Hosanna is a Hebrew word, kind of a combination of two Hebrew words that means something along the lines of give salvation now. Give salvation now. And God's people would use that phrase in a, in a term of kind of acclamation and praise about the one that they believed could actually bring that about. It was both a prayer and a title. And what they actually say is almost a direct quote from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is a psalm that would have been sung often at festivals by God's people, especially at a time like Passover. Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26 say this, Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. And in this acclamation, they bluntly declare to us their hope and expectation about Jesus. Blessings on you, the one who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. They call Jesus the King of Israel. See, this crowd of people had a legitimate longing, a legitimate hope that this promised Messiah, this promised rescuer would come, that an eternal king would rule and reign. A promise had been made to David many hundreds of years before that there will be someone in your line that will sit on your throne forever and rescue God's people and restore God's people. And they're hoping that Jesus is that person. From all the things that he's done, all the things that he's said, but see, they understood this in a political sense. They understood this in a, in a military sense. Right now, during this time period, the people of Israel are in captivity at some level. They're being oppressed by an invading Roman government that's over them. And so they expected this king to come into town to push back the Roman rule and the oppression they're experiencing to give them actually political freedom and political independence. So when Jesus comes into town, what they're celebrating is a triumphal entry of a conquering king. But then we get to verses 14 and 15. And in verses 14 and 15, we learn something else significant about the kind of king Jesus is. And we find it in the details. Look what John says. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. And John takes this moment to make a comment about Jesus' mode of transportation, which might seem a little bit strange to us. Like, why does he make such a big deal about what kind of animal it is that Jesus is riding on? But he quickly points out to us why it's significant. He says, Jesus riding on this donkey, it actually fulfills an Old Testament prophecy written hundreds of years before Jesus would come and walk this earth. But there's more to it than that. There's more to it than just a comment about this donkey that happens to fulfill an Old Testament prophecy. What's, what's happening here, what is going on, is this donkey symbolizes something more significant about Jesus. And it points to the text that it actually fulfills. So I want to read from Zechariah chapter 9. That's where this text, this quote comes from, and see what he's talking about here. Now the first line in Zechariah 9 and the first line that John quotes here aren't exactly the same, the word or the phrase fear not. It's a phrase that's often repeated in Isaiah, but here John's maybe making comment on why we shouldn't fear. And here's why. Zechariah chapter 9 verse 9 says this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. He's talking about God's people. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. 
righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. Do you hear some of those key words in there? Shout aloud, the people do that. Check. Your king is coming, here he comes. He's walking down the street, he's riding in to town. Check. And how's he coming? He's coming as a righteous one. He's coming as a bringer of salvation. It's his, it's in his grasp. Yes, yes, and yes. That's what the people have longed for. That's what they want, a king who finally will rescue them from their enemies. In fact, the rest of Zechariah 9 says that's what this king is going to do. He's going to push back the enemies. He's going to bring peace instead of war. But did you catch the character of this coming king? He's humble. He's humble. And his humility is displayed on the animal that he's riding on. This mode of transportation signifies coming in peace, to bring peace in a place of war. See, riding on a donkey may seem inconsequential to us, but Jesus chose this animal not only as a fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, but also to display the kind of king he is and the kind of king he would be. See, Jesus didn't ride into town on a war horse. He didn't ride into a town with a whole army behind him, declaring his victory, turning up and stirring up political frenzy. He doesn't need these people's support. He doesn't need their vote. He's not angling for something. He rolls into town riding on a humble beast as our humble king. Jesus' entry was indeed triumphal, but not in the way that the people expected, not even what they even experienced. They rightly understood that Jesus is their rescuing king, but they wrongly understood how Jesus would be their rescuing king. That he would be the one who has victory over their greatest enemy. But that wasn't the Roman government. It's their sin and death. See, even his closest friends, as verse 16 says, they didn't even quite get it in the moment. It wasn't until afterwards, looking back on this event, that things started to click for them. And you know, sometimes we can miss who Jesus is also. We can have an idea about who he is or a misconception about him or we hope he's something different. We can think, yeah, I like the Jesus on the war horse. I want him to come into my life and I want him to crush any kind of oppression in my life. I want him to fix my problems here and now in my own personal life, whatever struggles those happen to be. Or I want the Jesus that's going to ride on the war horse and fix all of our societal problems. Then he'll come in and he'll, he'll be the one that puts the right people on the Supreme Court or he'll make sure our taxes are where they need to be or he'll make sure that things are maintained, the status quo is maintained if you like your status quo or he'll change the status quo if you don't like it. He's going to flip things upside down. We want that Jesus that's going to roll into town and do some damage in that way. All the while not recognizing for some of us or maybe forgetting for others of us that our humble king has done the greatest act of justice, the greatest act of mercy already, and that he's come to conquer sin and crush death so that you and I would no longer be enslaved to it, no longer separated from a holy God because of it. And he did it by entering into the mess and taking on humanity. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that Jesus humbled himself by taking on humanity and entering into this world. That's why John says, fear not. That's why we can take up that exhortation not to fear, even in the midst of a messy world. See, Jesus didn't stay distant from us. He doesn't stay far away or separated from us. But Jesus also doesn't come in some flashy fashion. 
He, he doesn't come with an entourage looking for photo ops. No, Jesus was born into this world with humble circumstances. He was tempted in every way that you are. He sympathizes with you in your weaknesses, yet he never sinned. He never doubted God. He never turned away in disobedience. And here he is riding into this place to his sacrificial death on a humble beast as our humble king. Our humble king who's near to the brokenhearted. Our humble king who in his gentleness calls you to cast all of your burdens on him because he cares for you who calls you to find rest for your soul here and now in the midst of the messy parts of life and in the midst of the mundane, boring parts of life. Now, none of this means that we shouldn't seek to do good now. It's not saying we shouldn't seek to change things in our world right now. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't want positive change in our life and in our community and culture. What it means is, is that we don't find our hope in the here and now. We don't find our hope in the here and now. We find our hope in the one who is here now and who will come again to make all things new. Now, this crowd is there because of the wonderful things that Jesus has done, that he's raised Lazarus from the grave. And the Pharisees get what's going on here. Look at verse 19. It says, So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. See, their influence is waning. And they give this kind of overstatement, this hyperbolic statement that is more true than they realize. The whole world is going after Jesus. The crowd is proclaiming that he's the king. But they miss the donkey, which shows the kind of king he is. And if this is the kind of king that Jesus is, the humble king before us, then it impacts the kind of life we live with him and for him, which is what we see in this next section in verses 20 and 22. Look at those with me. It says, now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. When John says Greeks, he's referring not to specifically Greek people, but to Gentiles, to, to those who aren't Jewish who haven't been a part of that ethnicity or part of that faith. And the, the Pharisees said the whole world was going after Jesus. And so John's here kind of like, yeah, yeah, they are. They're, they're coming to see Jesus. Here's these non-Jewish people coming to see Jesus. They want to see him. They want to talk to him. They want to learn from him. So they asked some of the disciples to see him. And Jesus, never missing an opportunity to teach or instruct on life with him and the kingdom of God, speaks to these people and to his disciples and the crowd and what he says matters for your life and my life too. Verse 23 and 24, And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. See, so far throughout the Gospel of John, we've seen a phrase repeated over and over again. And that's Jesus saying, My hour has not yet come. He was telling us in those moments, listen, it's not time for me to complete my mission yet, to go to the cross to rescue all of humanity. That moment hasn't come yet, but now he says the time has come. Why does he say that? Because he's heading into the town, he knows it's going to come, and the nations are starting to come to him. And we'll actually learn more about that next week. But now Jesus speaks about how this will happen. He's saying, my hour has come, but it's not going to come with cheering crowds. It's not going to come with parties and declarations of greatness and praise like you would expect a conquering king to have. 
My hour has come, and it's going to come with jeering crowds and pain and abandonment and death. But it won't just be death for the sake of death. No, it will be for the good of the world. Just like a seed must go into the ground and die in order for it to bloom and bear fruit, Jesus is saying, I must die. And in my death, as everyone else has left me and I'm by myself, it won't be for naught. I will bring about fruit. I'll see men and women and children from every tribe and every language and every nation come to me and experience new life in me and forgiveness of sin and redemption from condemnation. Triumph will come, but it'll come through a seeming tragedy. But in it, Jesus will be glorified. In it, the nations will be saved. And what amazing news of amazing grace that our humble king brings. See, in this, Jesus gives a major corrective statement. A corrective statement for this crowd that was waving its palm branches around. And a corrective statement for you and I when we miss who Jesus actually is. And what it means to know him and follow him. With this audience around, with us listening in, we see in verses 25 and 26 what he tells us about the life we're to live with him. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What Jesus is saying here is critical for your life and my life now. What he's saying is in order to know him, in order to follow him and be in relationship with this humble king, you and I have to be a humble people. Not to earn salvation, not not to show God that we're worthy of something, but because we've trusted in Christ alone, we're united to him by faith and now we're submitting our life to him. See, if we're going to follow our humble king, if we're going to serve our humble king, we have to actually see him as a king that he is Lord over the entirety of our life, that he wants every inch and aspect of our life, and he deserves that from us because of the rescue that he's done in us and because of who he is. But this isn't some kind of fake humility. It isn't a call for you to, to have a low view of yourself. It's a call for you to have a right view of yourself, a right view of yourself when you place who you are before our holy, humble King. Jesus' words are sobering here. With all this kind of pomp and circumstance, this huge crowd that's cheering for him, he kind of draws a line in the sand here. And if you really want to follow me, if you really want to celebrate me, this is what life looks like for you. And that would have been challenging and sobering for that crowd, but I think it's even more so for us today because you and I find ourselves living in a culture that loves to love self that seeks to elevate the individual and our needs and our wants above almost anything else around us. Jesus says to love your life means you're actually going to lose it. Loving your life means that you find more delight in your life than you do in God. More delight in the things of this world than in him. Now this doesn't always look like a wholesale rejection of God. It certainly includes that. But sometimes it's when we see God more as a means to an end instead of the end itself. When God's there to hook us up and make us happy and kind of make our life more comfortable and easy. See, we can all be tempted to grab a little bit of Jesus and a whole lot of the world. To grab a little bit of Jesus and a whole lot of the world. And so Jesus is warning us here. He didn't come to make everything comfortable and easy for you in this life. No, Jesus came to rescue you. And Jesus came to redeem you. He came to remaster you. 
that instead of being mastered by sin, you would follow him as king, saving you from your sin and saving you from yourself. So instead of loving your life, he calls you to hate it. Now, hate's a strong word. We often tell our kids not to use the word hate, not because it's necessarily a bad word, but because it communicates really strong feelings of dislike and disdain. That's kind of the sense that Jesus is using it here. He's, what he's saying is not you should be self-loathing, not that you should have self-hate, but that you should think about it in a different way, that you should see your life as far secondary to who God is, far secondary to even people around you, that you would think of yourself less and less because you see God for who he is and you're in awe of him more and more. That's what humility is. You may say, well, how do I do that? How do I cultivate this kind of humility? Well, Jesus tells us in verse 26, he said, if you're going to serve me, you have to follow me. You have to follow your humble king, the one who himself came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, who rode into town as a humble king of glory that he is, placing the needs of others above his own. And just like that humble beast rides in on dis- that he rides in on to display his humility, you and I can be like a humble beast, the humble servant. Yes, I just called you a donkey. You can be a donkey, right? Like you can say, Lord, I want to do whatever I can to exalt you. I want to do whatever I can to make much of you and not myself. I want to be humble like you are. I want to lose my life so I might gain everything in you, Jesus. 1 John 2, 6 says that if we say we abide in Christ, that we're with Christ, that we're walking with Christ, that we have a relationship with Christ, then we have to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. Jesus is displaying that for us here in this moment, and he will over these next few chapters. Jesus' humble death to bring about life is now what he calls you and I to, that we would die to ourselves in order to experience real life in and through him. But dying to ourself is not self-denial just for the sake of self-denial. It's removing self as the center of our life and putting Jesus there and following him with the entirety of our life. Our humble king who is better and more glorious than anything or anyone in this world. Our humble king who laid down his life and took it up again to give us peace. Jesus who is both the means and the model for real and lasting life. To follow our humble king We must be a humble people. This whole sermon series has been about seeing Jesus rightly so that we might follow him fully. These two Greeks come and they ask to see Jesus. But what qualifies someone to see Jesus? Is it their ethnicity or their political allegiances or their socioeconomic status? Is it their gifts or abilities? Is it someone's theological knowledge or how clean they live life? No, it's having a humble and contrite heart, like our humble, suffering king. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. This is what he says to you. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to revive the heart of the contrite. This is who Jesus dwells with. This is who Jesus is near to. The one who, by grace, that you and I, by grace, recognize that your sin and your rebellion obliterates your standing with God. But the good news that your life does not belong to you and your hope in life in, your hope in life and death is that you're not your own, but you belong to this God and this Savior. 
your humble king who walked this path before you and who's walking with you still. Friend, how do you see Jesus? How do you see yourself before him? Is he your humble king who you're asking for help to faithfully follow him in humility? If you haven't asked him to do that, to help you with that, if you haven't come to him, I invite you to do that now. Look to Jesus who for the joy set before him rode into a city on a humble beast to be crucified in humility for you. But you know what? When Jesus comes again, when he comes back again to bring about the new heavens and the new earth, he doesn't roll into town on a donkey anymore. Revelation chapter 19 says Jesus is going to come on a war horse and on his thigh will be tattooed King of Kings and Lord of Lords and he'll bring an end forever and ever. All sin, all shame, all sickness, all death, all suffering. Fear not, friends. This is your king, your humble king who's risen, ruling, and reigning, who has come and will come again. May we be a humble people who follow our humble king. As a church, we strive to take communion together every week, but in this season, we haven't been able to do that. But today, we're going we're gonna to take that step as our first act, our first response to the preaching of God's word. Communion is a means of grace to refresh us in the love and humility of Jesus that we have in him. It's a physical act to refresh our soul. We eat the bread as a picture of Jesus' body broken for us, and we drink the cup as a picture of Jesus' blood shed for us. And as we strive to do this weekly, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So this meal is both a look backwards to what Christ has accomplished for us, and it's a look ahead to the day when Jesus will come again to make all things new. And taking this bread and taking this cup is actually an act of faith and humility. It's a declaration to yourself and those around you that your only hope and trust is in Jesus. So listen, if you haven't yet placed your faith in Jesus, then we would just ask you today not to take communion. Instead, just hang out where you're at, and instead, we want you to take Christ. That if you recognize that you haven't been following him or you don't know this humble king, that you would cry out to God in this moment and ask him to save you and ask him to redeem you. For those of you who have placed your faith in Christ, who have placed your faith in this humble king of ours and are seeking to faithfully follow him, we invite you to come and take communion. The elements are on a table over here to my right, your left. Whenever you're ready, I want to invite you to come and go grab those elements. You can try your best to remain a bit distant from one another as you go pick those up. And you can come and take it whenever you feel led to. Michael's going to play a little bit before we take communion, and we'll lead into our next set of songs just to respond in, in singing to the praise of God's name. If you don't know where the lyrics are for our songs, you can find them on our website by clicking on the banner. But we're going to respond in worship now. When you get the cup and get the, uh, get the cup there on the top, the actual top little layer is where you peel off where the little wafer of bread is if you're looking for that. So peel that off. Be reminded as you eat it that the body of Christ was broken for you. And then you can peel off the next part and drink the cup for being reminded and refreshed in the fact that the blood of Christ was shed for you. Let's pray and then let's take communion and worship together. Father God, we give you thanks. God, we give you thanks that you've revealed yourself to us. And God, we admit in this moment our need for you. Help us to see Jesus for who he is, really is. Our humble king who went to a humble death for us. And God, we pray that in that right moment right now, in this moment right now, you would crucify our pride and help us to follow Jesus in humility in every aspect of our life, really and truly believing that he is our only hope in life and death. God, we rejoice in your grace that you give us in Christ. Help us to be a faithful people 
to exalt the name of Christ, not the name of ourselves. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Come forward whenever you're ready. Thank you so much for listening to this sermon from Sojourn Fairfax. If you have any questions, please feel free to email us at info at sojournfairfax.com. Go in peace. Thank you.